This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Idea City Podcast. For more information or to watch talks online, go to ideacity.ca or check out the Idea City channel on YouTube. Hello, and welcome to Idea City on the Air, the radio show. By the end of the next half hour, you'll be inspired and enlightened by the world's biggest ideas, innovations, and breakthroughs as you hear about them in talks from the planet's smartest people. Moses Neimer's three-day annual Idea City conference in Toronto has been called Canada's premier meeting of the minds, and we're glad to have your mind with us. In this episode of Idea City on the Air, Helena Thomas speaks about Linear A and B, both ancient and mysterious languages. Now let's join Moses as he introduces Helena to the stage. It must be every kid's dream to be an archaeologist, in my case, Moses, pyramids, (laughs) hidden passages, unknown vaults full of unimaginable treasure, a kind of movie version of that idea. But here we have the real thing. This is Eleanor Thomas. She's here. She's here direct from Zagreb. She's a specialist in these ancient and somewhat mysterious languages, linear A and linear B, wonderful, lost and mysterious cultures. This is Elena. Thank you. My story today has three beginnings. Beginning number one, Greece about 4,000 years ago, two places are important, Athens and Crete. There was a king who ruled in Athens. His name was Aegeus. There was a more powerful king who ruled on the island of Crete, and this is the throne room in his palace of Knossos, and his name was Minos. Once, during an athletic competition, Aegeus accidentally killed Minos' son. As a punishment, every nine years, he had to send to Minos seven boys and seven girls, all belonging to noble Athenian families. These boys and girls would be thrown to a beast called Minotaur, who was an offspring of a sinful love affair between Minos' wife, Pasiphae, and a sacred bull. And that is why he was half man and half bull. In order to conceal this family shame, Minos hired the mythical architect Daedalus and his son Icarus to build him a labyrinth in which Minos lived and devoured young Athenians. Wishing to liberate Athens from this tragic burden, on one occasion, Aegeus decided to include into the group of young Athenians his own son, Theseus. Theseus' mission was called to kill Minotaur. Now, Theseus was a very brave hero, but every hero, as we know, needs the help of a woman. 
So this is where Amore comes into the picture because as soon as he landed on the island of Crete, Minos' daughter Ariadne passionately fell in love with him and decided to help him. Thus, on his way into the labyrinth, she gave him two objects, a sword to kill Minotaur with it and a thread to find his way out of the labyrinth. As you know, Theseus was successful, he killed Minotaur and decided to flee from Crete before Minos could kill him in return. Of course, Ariadne left with him, but as they were sailing back to Athens, planning to get married and live happily ever after, the god Dionysus ordered Theseus to leave sleeping Ariadne on the island of Naxos because he also fell in love with her and he wanted to marry her. Well, Theseus had no choice. He was a hero, but Dionysus was a god, so he had to leave Ariadne on Naxos. He left being heartbroken because he lost his bride-to-be, and thus he forgot something very important. He forgot the deal that he had with his father, and the deal was, should the mission be successful, and Minotaur killed, Theseus's ships will return to Athens with white sails. Should the mission be faithful and Theseus got killed, the ships would return with black sails. Being lost in his own sadness because he abandoned Ariadne, Theseus completely forgot about it. Aegeus, waiting for his son's return, when he observed that the ship was returning with black sails, assumed that his son was dead, and in an unbearable pain, he threw himself into the sea, which now bears his name, the Aegean Sea. So this was a little crush on one of the most moving Greek myths, and I'm aware that many of you know it, but I wanted, to hear it, I wanted you to hear it again, because it leads us to the beginning number two, which happened in Oxford in the late 19th century. There, in the Ashmolean Museum, we find a young man whose name was Arthur Evans. Evans was a curator of the prehistoric collection. Once he purchased for that collection a four-sided seal stone that came from Greece, and he was told that it was a relic from the Greek past, but still popular at the time because women in Greece uh, at the time believed that such stones had magical powers and were producing abundant milk for infants, which is why they were called milk stones, and women who just gave birth would carry these stones as uh, talismans around their necks. Upon a closer inspection of this object, Arthur Evans started wondering if it is possible that these signs that you can see were not just a pure decoration, but possibly signs of a script. So he traveled to Greece and decided to focus his attention on Greece in order to prove that what Homer wrote in his epics were not just pure stories, but it were, there were true historical events. He went to Mycenae. And just behind the Lion Gate, the monumental entrance to the Mycenaean citadel, he found a group of graves full of gold, and among those amounts, huge amounts of gold, he found this mask, which he named the Agamemnon's mask, because he believed that it once covered the face of the famous Athenian, Mycenaean sorry, king who led the Greek army to the Trojan War. Schliemann realized that this mask and Mycenae represented a really powerful civilization, which he named the Mycenaean civilization. 
The whole world was impressed by his discoveries. So was Arthur Evans, who found it difficult to believe that such a powerful civilization, represented here by the ruins of Mycenae, was without a script. So he decided to prove that it was quite possible that prehistoric Greece was literate, just as all other civilizations of the time, like uh, Egyptian, Mesopotamian, Hittite, were literate. So he thought it was impossible that the powerful civilization of prehistoric Greece was without a script. On the 23rd of March in 1900, he started excavating a mound on Crete near the modern town of Heraklio because he believed that this mound was hiding the remains of the Minos' palace of Knossos. He also followed Homer, who in his Odyssey said, among their cities is the great city of Knossos where Minos reigned. Only a week later, on the 1st of April of 1900, Evans dug into a room where he discovered hundreds and hundreds of clay tablets inscribed with signs of a script. Now, this was an incredible archaeological luck because only within a week he managed to prove that he was right and that the prehistoric inhabitants of Greece could really read and write. Over the next few years of his excavations in Knossos, he discovered a total of 4,000 of such tablets and he named the script Linear B. Linear B was subsequently discovered on some other Greek sites, including those on the Greek mainland. And for now, we have the total of about 5,500 tablets. Arthur Evans never discovered Minotaur's labyrinth, but he worked out that it is possible this complex plan of the Palace of Knossos that prompted the creation about the myth of labyrinth. He also realized very soon that this palace represented another civilization, which was chronologically earlier, and in honor of King Minos, he named it the Minoan civilization. For us, it is important because that is the earliest European civilization. Coming up after the break. Nobody could have imagined that the prehistoric inhabitants of Greece were in fact the Greeks. Welcome back to Idea City on the Air. You're listening to Helena Thomas speak about ancient and mysterious languages. Now, Arthur Evans had every reason to be satisfied. In the meantime, he also became Sir Arthur Evans. He proved that prehistoric Greeks could read and write. As I said, he discovered thousands and thousands of these tablets. But now he also wanted to be the one to decipher the script. And for that reason, until his death in 1941, when he was 90 years old, he was jealously hiding these tablets because he didn't want anybody else to see them before him and decipher the script before him. Unfortunately, he died without succeeding in this mission. And upon his death, the tablets were published, and in 1952, they were deciphered by a young British architect whose name was Michael Ventris, and who showed that these tablets were written in Greek. Everybody was shocked about this, because until 1952, nobody could have imagined that the prehistoric inhabitants of Greece were in fact 
the Greeks, because until then, everybody believed that the Greeks arrived much later in the first millennium BC, and then the first script that the Greeks used was the Greek alphabet. And now, here's Michael Ventris, who showed us, no, the first script that the Greeks had was linear B. It was created about 1500 BC, whereas the Greek alphabet was created in the 8th century BC. Linear B is a syllabic script. In the development of a writing practice, we have three principal stages. The earliest one is an ideographic or pictographic literacy, meaning that you can have thousands and thousands of signs, whereas one sign represents one word and, or one idea, like Egyptian hieroglyphs or like Chinese today. The next stage is a syllabic script, where you have one sign for one syllable, so you can have between 70 and 90 signs, like Japanese scripts today. And the final stage is a phonetic script, where you have one sign for one phoneme, and the most scripts that we use today are phonetic scripts, and the total number of signs are between 20 and 30. Linear B is a syllabic script, so to give you an example, my name that has three syllables would in Linear B written, be written with these three signs. As I said, Linear B is the earliest Greek script, but it is not the earliest European script. That title goes to preceding script, chronologically earlier script called Linear A, which was used during the chronologically earlier civilization called Minoan, as we have just heard. It was used on Crete and several small, smaller Greek islands in the period that we archaeologists call Bronze Age. Just a quick reminder where we are in these ancient times. So we are talking about two civilizations, Minon and Mycenaean. Linear A was the Minon script, the earliest European script. Linear B, the earliest Greek scripts. I would like you to remember that Linear A actually gave rise to Linear B. Linear B was modeled on the basis of Linear A. And from that, you can naturally guess that Linear A is also a syllabic script. Unfortunately, unlike Linear B, Linear A is still undeciphered. It is unfortunate, but not completely hopeless, because thanks to the fact that Linear B developed from Linear A, they shared common syllabary. Linear B adopted from Linear A 80% of syllabograms. That means that I can actually pronounce most of linear A syllables because I can apply phonetic values of linear B signs, deciphered signs, to identically looking linear A signs and assume that the phonetic values are shared as well. Thus, I can pronounce 80% of linear A signs, I can read most of linear A texts, but still, when I pronounce all this, when I read all this, I still do not know what inscriptions mean because we do not know the language of linear A. Provisionally, we call it the Minon language, and ever since the first linear A inscription was discovered 120 years ago, scholars have been trying to apply all languages that we know that were used in the Mediterranean basin at the time. So they tried Egyptian, Greek, Hittite, Luvian, Palaic, nothing worked. In order to understand the logic of this language and the script, I also tried to learn as many languages as in many ancient scripts. It's my favorite hobby, I know it sounds weird, but that's what I like to do in my free time. But for now, not a single language matches. So Whenever I read a linear A tablet, it doesn't resemble any language that I have learned. Both linear A and linear B were written on clay tablets. 
The difference being that linear B tablets are bigger than linear A tablets and also they contain more text. Thankfully, the structure of linear A tablets and linear B tablets are arranged in a similar way, and because linear B is deciphered, we know what kinds of texts we have. Unfortunately, we don't have any literature laws or letters. We only have administrative lists of goods, animals, or people that were working for the palace or are coming or leaving the palace. And because the archaeological context of these tablets matches well, so linear B is often found in storage rooms, linear A also, we can assume that very similar vocabulary can be expected to be read on linear A tablets. So that, that way I can predict what kind of vocabulary I can find on linear uh, A tablets. Linear A and linear B also share a common sign for numbers. We don't have time to go through these, but I want you to remember this number, the simplest one. And also they share some common uh, ideograms. Arthur Evans already deciphered these. Please remember this one, an ideogram for men. It is important for the next beginning because in this year I started my DPhil on the theme of understanding linear A through linear B. Here's the typical linear B tablet. This is what they look like. So we have a list of words, and because this is deciphered, we know that these are a list of names, possibly workmen who worked in the palace of Knossos. So this is one name, and he's one person, as you can see, number one, another name, another person. So then on the bottom, you have this word, which is circled, which reads Tosso. Tosso is the Mycenaean word for the total. And if you put these units together, you will get a beautiful total of 17 men. And now you know that this is the man. I told you to remember that earlier. So this is a perfect mathematical tablet. And but following this logic, I can understand some linear A tablets. So as you can see, this is a list of words. I don't know what they mean, possibly their names, but I cannot be sure. And each word is followed by number one, and then at the bottom you have a total of 10, preceded by a word, which I can read, kuro. So everybody would guess that this word means the total, right? So there are more examples of this. Here is a more complex tablet, again with a total of 24. And this works for on about 20 tablets. Sometimes the scribes made mistakes, and this is really sweet, because we have one tablet when the scribe miscalculated the quantities, and then he put one total on the bottom, and he realized that he made a mistake, he erased it, and he put the correct total on the bottom. So this is just a quick uh, view into what I can do, how I can apply a deciphered script to understand and an undeciphered one. Unfortunately, for now, we only have three deciphered linear A words, and they're all recorded to this kind of text and vocabulary. So, you know, kuro, toto, we have potokuro, which means grand total, and kiro, which possibly means deficit. We are not completely sure yet. It doesn't sound like much. I know that this was not very complex mathematics. You may be disappointed. But it is important because linear A represents the earliest recorded mathematics of the Western civilization. That's all I can do for now. Am I hoping to decipher linear A? Well, I frequently ask these questions, and I usually say, no, 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 it's impossible. Of course, deep inside of me, I do hope. Anybody who works on a deciphered script hopes that he can do that. I cannot do it yet because I don't have enough data, but I am hopeful. I'm hopeful. So I need more data, I need more tablets, and I need more repetitive vocabulary to work out the language. And until that happens, I will not know what the language is. But if any one of you is into linguistics, 
linguistics, and if you know what that language may be, could you please tell me tonight at the final party? <laughs> Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Idea City on the Air. Catch Moses Neimer's Idea City Conference live every June in Toronto or on regularly scheduled radio and TV shows throughout the year. And find hundreds of talks online every day at ideacity.ca. For more information about Idea City, find us online at ideacity.ca, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or youtube.com slash ideacity. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.